Welcome to this Elite Learning Podcast CE Activity. Our goal is to bring you speakers, information, and ideas to educate and challenge you to grow. Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. Hello and welcome to our discussion on monkeypox. This will be an interesting conversation. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this Elite Learning Podcast, and our guest is Dr. Daniel Griffin. Dr. Griffin is a physician scientist, board certified in internal medicine and infectious disease, with expertise in global health, tropical medicine, parasitology, and virology, including SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Griffin. Oh, thank you so much, and welcome everyone to uh, today's session. Yes, this will be interesting. Can we start from the very beginning? What exactly is monkeypox? Yeah, so you know, I think people first ask, you know, what what is this? What's this name? What's this all about? So, so first off, this is a, a viral disease. So it's a virus. Um, it's transmitted through contact. Um, it, it's described as one of the pox diseases. We actually see these these pox these vesicles, um, and uh, and the name the name is historical. The name's changing, <laughs> but uh, it gets this name because back in the 1950s was actually. Um, recognized in a in a colony in monkeys in, in Copenhagen in Denmark. Um, we didn't actually see the first cases in humans uh, until about 1970, or probably the better is to say we didn't recognize cases in humans until about 1970. So um, it has this historical name. It's now um, the WHO has, has suggested, and I'm going to sort of agree with them, um, renaming it MPOX, sort of getting rid of what they they are concerned is, is a racist stigmatizing um, name. So, um, you know, so we'll, we'll There'll be a transition period. Um, a lot of the literature, right, still will have the term monkeypox in there. Um, but over time, this will become mpox. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. It's a virus disease. Um, it's an infectious disease. It's a disease that is predominantly transmitted through contact um, that manifests as these pox, these vesicles, these pustules. So um, originally, it was a transfer from monkeys to humans is what you're saying, or they they saw it in monkeys at one point. Just to you, clarify, you know, that, that's a great question because that really leads into so what's the reservoir? Where where is the where's the mpox virus um, usually residing? Um, so uh, the suggestion is it's probably in rodents, um, and the monkeys just like us, um, you know, a zoonoses. Is, sort of interesting, you know, zoonosis probably rodent to monkey, rodent to us. Um, so we don't necessarily think that people got this from monkeys. Um, the suggestion is the monkeys, just like us, got it from rodents. Um, and then there are probably these rodent reservoirs. And we've even run into that here in the United States. Actually, one of the introductions about 20 years ago was in the exotic uh, pet trade, um, where in an exotic um, pet, I guess you'll call it a pet, um, a little rodent that someone was going to have as a pet uh, was brought into the country. And we, we had an outbreak and actually um, actually got into a prairie dog population. And then we had that rodent prairie dog um, uh, transfer to humans. So the reservoir, it's probably a rodent pox, so a little bit of a misname. So mpox is probably going to be a better um, referent going sure. forward. Yeah, that makes sense. It, but not everything can be transmitted from one species to another, correct? No, and th that's one of the the challenges. I mean, you know, the the viruses, the pathogens that come to attention are those that can. Um, but you know, mo most 
pathogens um, are not as we, we say promiscuous in infectious disease. They're they're kind of stuck within their their particular host. Um, but you know, as we saw with SARS-CoV-2, as we've seen repeatedly with the the mpox virus, um, it can actually infect several mammalian species. That's really interesting. So. Who should be concerned? Does this target any specific demographic or is it whomever? Yeah, so the, the timing of when we're recording this, I think, is 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 important to give a context here. Um, so MPOX is something that has been endemic um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa for, well, since we recognized it in 1970. So, you know, there continue to be cases, there continue to be outbreaks. Uh, there was a little girl whose care I was involved with um, prior to our outbreak in the U.S. in, in Ghana, little uh, newborn girl, just covered with the MPOX pustules. Oh, wow. um, so it's an ongoing thing in sub-Saharan Africa. But what we saw recently in, in Europe, the United States, um, in the spring and into the summer of 2022, um, was an introduction um, probably through a particular demographic. So, you know, men having sex with men, um, a number of these events, a number of these fest festivals. Um, it started in that population. A large number of the diagnoses were in that population. Um, but as I'll point out, not all the cases were in that population. So that was a group that had a lot of contact that we recognized and diagnosed and treated a number of cases. Um, but we also saw cases um, in women who are not men having sex with men. We saw cases in children. Um, and actually what we realized with some recent literature is we probably missed thousands of cases outside of that, that demographic, the men having sex with men. Um, and in the most recent um, study of, of women who got um, monkeypox or mpox, um, about a third of them, there was no obvious sexual contact. It was, it was not sexually transmitted. It was a contact transmission. And the children, um, again, th those were contact transmission cases. So there was a population that saw the bulk of it. That population mm -hmm. actually um, had the highest rate of you know, early prompt diagnoses. Um, but who should worry about this? Well, no one should worry about this, but I think we should be aware. Um, we should um, be alert. Um, in the United States and Europe, the number of new diagnoses has really dropped down to about a dozen, about 10 or so per day. So really tremendous compared to seeing that many every single day in New York City in the early days. Um, you know, right. for the entire country, that really dropping down. But no, it's it's um, it's important to realize that it's not restricted to a certain population. That's good to know because we do hear a lot of oh, I don't need to worry about that because it's only gay men was uh, a popular um, misconception, and so it's contact. You said is how so it's spread. It, it is primarily contact. And I think this is this is important. And, and you know, very few things in the world are strict binaries, you know. The sure. um, that's funny. This is this circular, you know, where you say, you know, nothing is a hundred percent, and I'm claiming that that statement is true. But uh, so, you know, ninety-nine percent of the time, um, you know, we we believe that the transmission is through pretty significant direct contact. Um, there there are certain circumstances where there may have been some sort of respiratory transmission. So um, we, we tend to be incredibly careful when these individuals um, are, are in the hospital uh, or mm. in other settings uh, to really prevent that, that low likelihood event, but that possible event. Gotcha. Okay. So you're saying approximately 10 per, 10 per day, did you say? 
Yeah, we're down to about that. I mean, we we have about 30,000 diagnoses so far, confirmed diagnosis in the United States of, of MPOX. Um, and that was really peaking early in, in the summer, uh, summer of 2022. Um, that really has dropped down. We, we continue to see a few cases diagnosed uh, per day, um, you know, and and we do suggest that we're not diagnosing every single case. And we'll talk a little bit about that because, you know, some cases, you know, hit you over the head. Like I described that young girl just covered with these umbilicated pustules. So pustules with like, almost looks like they have a belly button, each one of them. Um, you know, two, what can just be a, a, a painful rash maybe in the groin area and not even sure what that is. Um, some of these young men, you know, suggesting that they now have adult onset acne in their 30s, which they don't have. So they're really can be quite a quite a spectrum here. Some very obvious, some quickly diagnosed, some maybe because of, of bias, um, the diagnosis is, is significantly delayed. What are the other symptoms aside from the pustules? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about this introduction into um, the U.S. and Western Europe is we saw a um, a broader range of presentations, right? So the, the initial idea was that you started off with a febrile illness, then you would start to develop a rash, and it was really this, this defined progression. Um, we actually saw in this case, half the people didn't have that fever. Half the people started to have a rash first before they had any um, systemic issues. So um, you can have fever, yes or no. You can feel sick or not. Um, you can have enlarged lymph nodes, or not. Um, hmm. You can have a rash. I mean, the, the rash is almost uniform because that's how we think of it and diagnose it. So there, there may be manifestations without an obvious rash. Um, but typically, there's that rash. And then the rash, um, you know, we had said before this, that it would go through various stages of development, but that it would actually be um, some of them at the same time. So chicken pox, you get vesicles, they're all at the same time, all in the stage of development, and then they would scab over. Um, you know, classically, what we had said about MPOX is that you might have vesicles and pustules at the same time, um, but the reverse is true. With MPOX, you can have all vesicles, all pustules, all at the same time as well. So the, the manifestations are so broad that really the, mm -hmm. the takeaway that we've said to clinicians is if it's a vesicular rash, if it's anywhere in your differential, you got to test because that's the only way to tell whether or not it's it's MPOX. And I know, got to throw yeah. this in, um, you know, you could have more than one thing. And about 30% right. of people that were diagnosed with MPOX had something else also. So this approach of like, oh, I will find out that it's, um, you know, that's HSV and then I'm done. Well, the fact that it's HSV does not tell you that it's not also monkeypox or mpox. Interesting. I can see how it was uh, misdiagnosed for sure. So how, do, how is it tested for now? Yeah, so there, there's um, basically a way to test it. I'm going to say there's two ways that this can be um, uh, procured, um, but we're using swabs. So these are those um, non-cotton um, large tips that we use. Um, you rub the lesion um, to unroof it. Um, early on, there was a suggestion that you might use a needle to unroof it to get at that fluid. We've said stop doing that because there's been some issues where people have poked themselves with those needles. So no sharp objects. It's rec recommended that you use two of these. Um, you're going to rub those lesions, um, get that fluid once you've unroofed it. Um, and this is a little bit of a challenge because those roofs um, can be a little bit thicker on um, an MPOX vesicle pustule than they would be on some of the other viral um, rashes. Um, and then you're gonna put those into the, the liquid viral transport medium. Um, and the split here, which I think is really nice, is 
they looked at can people do this um, patients do this do you need a board certified you know infectious disease no you do not need a board certified infectious disease physician um, patients can actually swab the lesion themselves drop it into the the liquid for you as same sensitivity uh, that specimen is then sent off for PCR which I think um, we've all gotten familiar with um, and that PCR is is very sensitive very specific for this diagnosis do you see home testing in the future? Um, probably not quite yet. There, there is there is some development um, uh, antigen testing, right, which would, would be amenable to that. Swabbing those, putting them in a liquid, dropping them onto a lateral flow like those home COVID tests. Um, I'm a huge fan of people, uh, you know, able to test themselves. Um, we'll see. We'll see. And part of the part of the challenge, right, is that this is dropping to low numbers in the U.S., dropping to low numbers in Europe. Um, when diseases start to drop to low numbers in high um, resource um, countries, we start to lose the focus on those limited resource areas that are still in the middle, that are, continue to be in the middle of MPOX uh, spread. Interesting. Any uh, issues or concerns about mortality related to this? That was one of the good things I will say about um, the MPOX spread. There were very few deaths, um, you know, less Excellent. than less than ten, uh, maybe about a half a dozen that were, you know, people that that um, died either with or from MPOX um, tended to be immunocompromised individuals. Um, but no, by and large, though, this can be a horrible. Um, disease as far as pain and suffering. Um, sometimes the pain and suffering being so severe that people need to be hospitalized, people require narcotics, uh, they may wow. not even be able to eat or drink, <clears throat> but your chance of dying from MPOX is very low. Okay. And the pain from the pustules or is it joint pain or what is the, where's the pain? So the, the pain is, is most often where the rash, where the skin lesions are. Um, so sometimes if that's like in a, in a rectal area, it can be horribly painful, uh, sometimes on the face, um, you know, and, and not only can it be horrible pain, horribly painful, um, but the, the inflammation can be so deep, it can actually uh, lead to scarring of these areas. Wow. Ouch. Are we aware if there are any long-term effects of this that can that we should be aware of? Yeah, is there a um, is there a long MPOX? Is there a post MPOX syndrome? Um, you know, you would think we would know, right? As I mentioned, first described nineteen seventy in, in in Africa. Number of uh, you know recognitions since then. We should have really good data on this. Um, unfortunately, we don't. So in, hmm. in the next, you know, months to um, years, uh, we'll be following a lot of these individuals, seeing if there's a post-infectious sequelae syndrome. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So the presentation, it's not typical. Everyone doesn't present with the same thing initially, like you said. Some will have fever first or... Yeah, I think that's really critical, right? And maybe we sure. learned that from COVID-19. You know, the, the way that you tell what viral syndrome, what viral infection you have is is by testing. Um, there, there are many more atypical presentations. The, the virus doesn't read the textbook. Um, so we need to continue <laughs> to be aware. And, and that, that's one of the challenges, right? As you drop to lower numbers, it's another test. Do I really need to think about this? And, and yes, because, um, you know, if we don't, um, uh, the, the suggestion is that this is something that's going to be around, that's going to periodically spike, maybe during summers when there's more contact. Um, you know, and if we're not ready for it, then it'll get ahead of us and we'll start to see this spread. Okay. 
Now, would this be something that is routine, not routine, but tested in the ER, for example? Would they be doing that with people that present with any kind of related symptoms or is it just not enough cases to make that a routine? You know, um, there, there was a time there when, when it was really, um, I'll say, rampant here in the tri-state area, seeing lots of cases um, that I would do weekly discussions with our urgent care centers. Um, and it still continues to be part of our workup for someone who comes in with a vesicular rash. And, and I would suggest that should continue. Will it continue? Will it continue in busy emergency rooms once the, uh, the case numbers have dropped really low? Probably not. Um, you know, there will be questions about how cost effective that is, um, but that's going to be the challenge going forward. We don't want to miss cases and then have that individual spread it to family members, spread friends, family, other contacts. Okay. Is there a vaccine? Will there be a vaccine? I know we so there, all... There are vaccines. Um, okay. And a couple, you know, the traditional smallpox vaccine, but there's also this um, Ankara um, Genios vaccine. Um also out of Denmark, so interesting enough. <laughs> and, uh, um, and it's actually quite well tolerated. Over a million doses has been, have been given out in the United States. It's a two-dose wow. vaccine. Um, and, and we are getting uh, pretty good data on efficacy here. Um, it looks like there's effectiveness at preventing um, disease. Uh, it also looks like there's really good B-cell memory response here. So there may be a durability. Um, so we're, we're hoping um, that this continues to be an effective tool. It looks like it's an effective tool. But yes, there is what we think is a, um, a safe, effective vaccine. Um, we now do not have vaccine shortages. There are plenty, plenty of supply. Um, we should be ready for a, what we describe as a ring vaccination uh, you know, for when we see the next number of cases. Okay. So it would be in the presence of, do you see it as being something that children are vaccinated for like chicken pox or would that be seapox? So I, I think that's a great question. Is where does this fit in? Is this going to become a routine childhood vaccine? At this at this point, the the thought is is no. Um, is this something that all healthcare workers will get? Well, with ten cases in the entire country per year, maybe not. Now, the other reason why this is um, not so essential as a routine vaccination is you can get vaccinated post exposure. So if you take care of an individual, an individual comes in, they test positive, you can always get start your vaccination series at that point, and it looks to be efficacious. So um, we still have that as an option, and that actually happened several times this last summer um, when healthcare workers were exposed, they would start their vaccination series. Um, either they would have no um, no manifestations of the mpox, or they would actually get a very mild, maybe a single lesion. Now, um, so we talked about how people present. What are the treatments once they've been diagnosed with monkeypox? Where do we go from there? Yeah, so there was a um, a number of treatments that were were thought would potentially be effective, um, and the the treatment that we really went forward was tecoviramat, um, and this. Uh, T-pox um, treatment um, can be oral, mostly oral, can also be done IV. Um, and um, it actually, it, it looks to be effective. We're, we're waiting for the results of the, uh, the STOMP T-pox trial, uh, where we'll actually get a little more data. Does it work only in severe? Does it work in severe? Does it work in milder cases? Um, it looks like it works, but at this point, you know, it's hard to sort out, you know, positive experiences, a pile of anecdotes versus the results of that randomized control trial. Um, 
one of the things I'll say was promising is that we only saw two reported um, resistant um, viruses in all the thousands of cases that we saw. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, do you, so I'm assuming, and maybe I shouldn't, you know what they say about assuming, but I'm assuming that people with um, co more co comorbidities or immunocompromised are more susceptible or suffer more from uh, MPOX than others, or am I just going off down a rabbit hole? No, no, I, I think you're right there. And, and it makes sense. And it's what we saw is, uh, you know, and it compromised immune system is not something great to have with any infection. And we saw some of the, the worst manifestations in those with compromised immune systems. So uh, thinking about a demographic that there were a lot of cases, men having sex with men. Um, we had some HIV positive individuals, uh, particularly with um, significant immune compromise, really low CD4 counts, maybe uncontrolled viral loads. Um, some of those individuals had really severe cases. So, um, you know, we, we are worried about um, individuals who are pregnant. We're worried about children. We're worried about individuals, you know, advanced age. Um, and we're very worried about individuals that do not have an intact, functional, robust immune system. Right. Are people getting scarring? So that's a problem, yes. Um, some of the severe cases have, have led to scarring. Um, there was a lot of experience before it came to the U.S. Um, with scarring of the eye, so you know, permanent um, damage to the eye, right? Not something you can quickly fix. And so individuals that have any disease that's close to potentially spreading to the eye would be promptly uh, put on therapy. Um, but some of the areas where the scarring is so bad, we've actually had individuals require um, reconstructive plastic surgery because the, the scarring can be that uh, devastating. Wow. Is a, if someone is hospitalized, are they on isolation or do we need to go that They far? are. They're, they're on contact, they're on droplet, they're on airborne. So it's really the, the, the full nine yards when, when they're there. And, you know, as I mentioned, even though this is really predominantly contact, you know, we have studies where the airplane full of people, one person with active MPOX, no one else gets it. Um, you know, it doesn't spread easily. Um, but you certainly don't want this spreading in a hospital setting. So when we've had patients hospitalized, um, they're in a private room. Um, it's a negative pressure room, such as we would use for tuberculosis, measles, um, now at a lot of centers for COVID-19. Um, everyone is wearing gowns and gloves and all the rest. Um, you know, and, and the contact transmission is the main concern. So you really want to be properly donning and doffing that personal protective equipment. Sure. Yeah. What percentage of people, or even an estimate of a percentage of people are hospitalized, do you think? Um, you know, it was a larger percent than, than we initially thought would end up hospitalized, maybe about 20% of individuals who were diagnosed, right? We're only diagnosing, you know, sort of the more obvious. So, so the actual, you know, the actual number of infections relative to hospitalization may be a little bit lower. Um, but when you actually look in a lot of these series, um, about 20% of the individuals that are recognized, diagnosed, um, end up in the hospital. That's quite a, quite a chunk. Yeah, it is. And if they are sent home, um, are they instructed to isolate at home, like those who have gotten COVID and had to isolate at home? Because I would think families would be susceptible. Yeah, the, the isolation um, recommendations are going to apply to those who end up in the hospital, also those who don't end up in the hospital. And it's really quite an onerous um, isolation period. So just to go through the details. So we are recommending um, that they continue to isolate. Um, 
not until the lesions are just scabbed over, but till the lesions are completely healed with a new layer of skin. Um, so wow. for some individuals, this really can represent three to four weeks of isolation, um, wow. which is really quite a challenge, right? So, you know, a lot of individuals will basically say, I, I can't, you know, how am I going to eat? How am I going to get groceries? You know, fortunately, we have a lot of delivery options, um, but that's the recommendation. You continue to, to isolate um, for that period of time, whether it's three, four, five weeks, I had one individual um, before those lesions fully heal and um, and skin, not just scab, but skin over. Um, if that individual is going to go out during that period of time, we're recommending that they um, wear masks, that they wear gloves, um, that they do everything they can to prevent spread. Um, you know, even though we say this is not as easily transmitted as other pathogens, even though this is predominantly significant. Um, contact, skin-to-skin um, -skin contact in general. Um, there can be fomite transmission and other situations. So we, we really want to prevent it from spreading and pretty, pretty strict um, isolation recommendations. Boy, that's got to be tough. I mean, uh, kids, for example, you said that some children have had it, correct? Yeah, some children have had it. We've had some children here in the local area, and and oh my, <laughs> this is really yeah. this is really difficult for them. Um, you know, a lot of uh, telehealth visits. We're glad we have telehealth now because you really don't want these mm -hmm. people uh, traveling about. You know, um, but yeah, checking in with them, making sure it's going okay. It can be um, psychologically um, difficult to isolate that long. Sure. Absolutely. It would be. Thankfully, a lot of people get to work from home now, which is uh, not everyone, though. That That's really tough. All right. We have covered a lot of information here in episode one that's very informative. We've talked about uh, MPOX that was first noticed to be spreading in humans, symptoms besides the classic rash, testing and treatment, and thankfully there is a low mortality rate. That is good news. So let's continue our conversation with Dr. Griffin. We plan to keep the questions and answers flowing and also later discuss interprofessional collaboration within the healthcare team. Remember the healthcare team includes the patient. So we will uh, see you in episode two. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning, Calibri Healthcare. Thank you for listening to and learning from this podcast CE activity. Did you know that you can listen, subscribe, and share Elite Learning podcasts on podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, and Google? Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform today and never miss a new episode. To earn your certificate, follow the prompts to complete the CE activity.